Well, church, this morning uh, is the final sermon in our series entitled uh, The Politics of the Kingdom, where we've been considering the, the values and, and, and the policies of the kingdom of heaven and considering how those values should shape and form our political engagement in the kingdoms of this world. And today we've come to the question that you've really all been waiting for, right? <laughs> what really are the politics of Jesus? I mean, we, we've talked about the values within the kingdom of God and, and how they bridge across both uh, political parties. We've talked about how there is to be unity within the body of Christ despite political differences. We've talked about general principles of, of kingdom leadership and, and about how those might translate into how we think about leadership in this world. And, and that's been great and all, but, but I know that what you've really been waiting for is the question that we're asking today, what are Jesus's politics? And, and this is where some of you, I know, are secretly hoping that I'm finally going to tell you that, yes, Jesus actually was a Republican. <laughs> well, I'm not sorry to say that for those of you who are hoping for that revelation, you are going to be sorely disappointed <laughs> because I'm not going to do that. But what I am going to tell you is what Jesus actually thought about the politics of his day and what he actually thought about the way in which his disciples should engage with the political system. And so today we really do come to the crux of the matter. Our passage this morning is, is the one that was just read. It's from Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 13. And so if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to encourage you to open it up and, and, and follow along with me as we talk about this passage. And, and before the beginning, let me just say, um, I, I got a lot of the information in this sermon from uh, a, a message that Tim Keller preached about 20 years ago. So if you're a big Keller fan, uh, you may have heard some of this before. Uh, and I just, I don't, I'm not trying to take credit for his work, um, so I wanted to acknowledge that. Uh, it was a message that blessed me, and I hope that, that these ideas will, will encourage you as well. So in this passage, uh, uh, Jesus was asked a question about the paying of taxes. In, in verse 14, he is asked, Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Now, before we get to Jesus' response, uh, which tells us what Jesus thinks about politics and, and what tells us how he thinks his followers should engage in them. Uh, I want to give you some background information uh, on this question that, that, again, I found really helpful and I think sheds light on both the significance of the passage and the weight of Jesus' response to it. Now, within the Roman Empire, uh, there were all kinds of taxes on all kinds of items, none of which were very popular. But the tax that Jesus is being asked about in this passage uh, was a very particular and very controversial tax known as a, as a head tax or an imperial tax. And we know that this is the tax that they're talking about here because in his response, Jesus eventually asks for a denarius in order to be able to pay uh, the tax uh, that is referenced. And, and a denarius was the amount that this head tax was for. The head tax was, it was an annual tax of one denarius. Now, denarius wasn't very much money in those days. It was about a day's wage for the very lowest of peasants. So financially, this wasn't a burdensome tax at all. But the problem with the tax, and the reason that it was such a controversial tax, and that this was ultimately such an important question that was being asked of Jesus, is that the head tax was a tax that every person had to pay 
for the privilege of being a subject of Caesar. It was tied to the census, and it essentially declared that everyone belonged to him. When this tax was originally instituted about 25 years earlier, shortly after the start of the Christian era in in the year 6 AD, there was an armed revolt against this tax and all that it stood for. This revolt was led by a man named Judas the Galilean. And when Judas led this revolt against the head tax, he did three things. First, he called on all Jews to refuse to pay the tax. He argued that it wasn't appropriate for Jews to belong to Caesar, and he challenged them not to pay it. Second, he took a band of armed men into the temple and cleared out all of the foreigners, cleared out all of the Romans out of the temple. He kicked them out in order to cleanse the temple and to try to make it holy again after it had been defiled by these Gentiles. And then thirdly, he declared that that the Jews were now going to let God be their king and not Caesar. They were going to stand against the occupying power that was the Romans. And by getting rid of injustice and by getting rid of oppression, they were going to establish the kingdom of God here on earth. So, So these three actions, not paying the tax, clearing the temple, and declaring the kingdom of God, it made for a full-scale revolt. Now, in response to this revolt, Judas was very quickly attacked, caught, and executed by the Romans. His revolt didn't go very far, but it did make an impression on the people. It was actually recorded in the scriptures. In Acts chapter 5, Gamaliel looks back on that event as a failed revolution attempt. And so as you consider the history of this tax, do you see the significance of the question that Jesus is being asked in our passage today? Here we are some 25 years later, and do you see that it is all happening again? Jesus has built his entire teaching around the coming of the kingdom of God. It's what he's been proclaiming for the past three years of his ministry, that the kingdom is coming, that it is near, that in him it is present. He's spoken against injustice and has spoken about setting people free from their oppression. He's constantly heralding the kingdom and calling people to be ready for its arrival. That is not a spiritual message to Jewish ears. It's a very political one. Jesus is proclaiming a coming kingdom. And within just the past day or two, after his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, where he entered into, uh, where Jesus rode into the, the capital city to the adulation of the crowds, and upon his arrival, what did he do? He entered into the temple and drove out the merchants and, and the money changers who were defiling the temple by taking advantage of the people there. Right? That, that happened in just the previous chapter of, of Mark chapter 11. It's part of what caused this questioning of Jesus by the authorities. He had riled everyone up by clearing the temple. And so now Jesus has proclaimed the coming of the kingdom of God. And he has cleansed the temple. And so there's really only one piece missing. Do you see that? There's only one piece of the political revolt that's missing. It's a refusal to pay 
the head tax. And so the authorities, they, they send the Pharisees and the Herodians to ask Jesus, what do you think of the head tax? Should the people pay the tax or not? And all of this history reveals that this question that is being posed to Jesus isn't just a question about an unpopular tax. It's not just a matter of, sh- of, of uh, if he says they should pay it, he'll be in trouble with one group, or if he says they shouldn't pay it, then he'll be in trouble with another group. There's much more at stake here. What they're really asking Jesus is, are you a revolutionary? Are you planning to overthrow the Romans? Right? You've cleansed the temple. You've proclaimed the coming of the kingdom of God. What are you going to do next? Are you going to tell the people not to pay the tax? There's so much more at stake here than just Jesus' approval rating in the eyes of one group or another. This is intended to be a real trap for Jesus. His entire ministry is on the line in this question. For on the one hand, if he says that they shouldn't pay the tax, then he's basically calling for an armed revolt, and he and his people will be crushed by the Roman authorities. Uh, he, he just won't be unpopular with them. He'll be destroyed by them. Like Judas the Galilean, they'll attack him and capture him and execute him, and it will all be over very quickly. But on the other hand... If he says, yes, that the Jews should pay the head tax, then everyone who's heard him talking about the coming of the kingdom of God and who's been following him because of their desire to see that kingdom come, well, they will know that that he's really just been blowing smoke all along. (laughs) For if they have to keep paying taxes to Caesar, if they're going to remain under the thumb of the Romans, then, then there's nothing really happening here. He'll be discredited in the eyes of his followers and, and it will be all over. Do you see how this is a a lose-lose situation that they've set up for Jesus? He either loses his people or or he loses his life. And and either way, Jesus loses and the Jewish authorities who want to get rid of him win. They've backed him into a corner with this question and and they're forcing his hand to to show his political stripes. What does Jesus actually believe about the politics of this world? What does he really think is appropriate for his followers in regards to their engagement in the political systems of the world? That's what Jesus is being forced to confront here. And his answer will tell them one way or another. So how does Jesus answer? In verse 15, recognizing that they're trying to trap him, Jesus asks them to bring him a denarius so that he could look at it. And after looking at the coin, Jesus asks them, whose likeness and inscription was on it? To which they replied that it was Caesar's. And then Jesus answers them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And in this answer, Jesus reveals both where he stands on the issues of politics and what he thinks is appropriate political engagement for those who follow him. And what we see in Jesus' answer are three things. The first, he refuses political simplicity. Second, he refuses political complacency. And finally, he refuses political primacy. Okay? He refuses political simplicity, he refuses political complacency, and he refuses political primacy. And we're going to consider each of those points briefly. So, so first with this response, that Jesus refuses political simplicity. 
For, you see, when the Pharisees and Herodians ask Jesus, should the people pay the head tax or not? What they're looking for is a simple, easy, straightforward, yes or no answer. They want to pin Jesus down into a nice, neat, clean political box. Are you for the Romans or are you against them? Do you support their taxes or do you not? They're looking for a simple and a straightforward answer. But Jesus doesn't give it to them. You know, it's interesting that that when it comes to Jesus' relationship with us or, or to our relationship with Him, He's very straightforward about how everything works and about where He stands with us and where we stand with Him. He makes it very clean and very simple. Follow me, Jesus says. Listen to me, obey me, trust me. You're with me or you're not with me. It's all very black and white. There's not a lot of gray in there. There's not much that's left up to our interpretation. Jesus is very clear and he's very straightforward and he's very simplistic in regards to our relationship with him. But when it comes to our relationship with the state, when he's asked a question about our relationship to politics, he doesn't give a simple yes or no answer. Instead, he kind of gives a, a, a both and, a, a very nuanced answer. They want a simple yes or no, or, or are you a Republican or a Democrat type of answer, but Jesus won't give, them, give it to them. He resists political simplicity. He answers the question, give the tax to Caesar, but there's more to it than that, Jesus says. Give to Caesar's, Caesar what is Caesar's, but you also have to give to God what is God's. He refuses political simplicity. And at least one practical implication of this for our lives, as we navigate our, our hyper-political world, is that we must not do to Jesus what he refuses to do to himself. We can't boil Jesus down to political simplicity. But we can't say that, that this particular party or, or that specific platform or, or these individual candidates are Jesus's. We can't say that, that all Christians or true Christians or faithful Christians should vote in this particular way. Jesus doesn't do it to himself. And he doesn't do it to his followers. So why would we try to do it to him? Why would we try to do it to each other? Jesus refuses political simplicity, and we should also. This answer from Jesus also reveals that he refuses political complacency. We see this in Jesus' engagement when he asks the Pharisees and the Herodians, whose likeness is on the coin? Whose image does it bear? They replied that it, it bore Caesar's image, to which Jesus responded, give it Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, right? The coin bore his image. It was literally his silver printed out of his wealth. It belonged to him. And so Jesus exhorts them that they should pay the tax. They had no right to not pay it. If it's Caesar's money, you should give it to him if he asks for it. And this coincides with other New Testament teaching that instructs the children of God to be subject to governing authorities and to pay what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. And honor to whom honor is owed. You don't have to agree with the government or like what the government is doing in order to be subject to them. 
These are pagan, evil governments that Jesus and the apostles are talking about. But it didn't matter whether they agreed with the government or not, and the Jews certainly didn't. Jesus' point was this, that his followers should, should subject themselves to and participate in the government systems in which they find themselves even in regards to the payment of this unpopular tax, which communicated a controversial message. Jesus challenges his followers to refuse political complacency. But he tells them to do so within limits. And this brings us to the final point that Jesus makes, and to the biggest issue of all in his response, which is that we need to refuse political primacy. And this is where Jesus really lays it all on the line and really shows his true cards. This is where Jesus makes clear both his political position and his expectations about how his followers should interact with the systems of the world. For after Jesus says that they are to render to Caesar what is Caesar's, he also says that they are to render to God what is God's. His point with this final instruction was this, that if something has someone's image on it, then it belongs to them. Give the coin to Caesar because it had his image on it. But in that same line of thought, we also have to give to God what belongs to God. We have to give to God that which is marked with his image on it. And that is you. In Genesis chapter 1, we read that when God created humanity, he said to himself, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created the male and female, he created them. You and I and every human being who has ever lived on this earth are imprinted from creation with the image of God. We bear His mark on our lives. And as a result, we belong to Him. And Jesus' point is that we must not give our primary allegiance to anyone or to anything else. We cannot belong to anyone or to anything else. God has a claim on our lives. We are His. Participate in the system, yes. Give what is owed to it, yes. But give only what is owed to it. Don't give the system more than what is owed. Don't give it your heart. Don't give it your allegiance. Don't give it your loyalty. We have to refuse political primacy. We have to recognize where our true allegiance lies. And that is with the one who has marked us with his image. And this really brings us all the way back to where we began this series and to the reason that we began this series. For this has ultimately been all about the question of where our primary allegiances lie. It's all been about the question of who or what are we giving ourselves to? Who or what are we allowing to shape us and to form us as disciples? Are we being shaped and formed as citizens of the kingdom of God who live as strangers in this world? Or are we being shaped and formed by the kingdoms of this world to the point where we're out of step with 
and not fitting into our true home in the kingdom of God. And nowhere is that crossroads made more clear than in this engagement with Jesus and the coin. And the most profound example of this crossroads is really hidden in this text. It's there, but it's very subtle. For it occurs when Jesus is asking about the coin. Did you notice what he asks? He asks not just whose inscription, whose image is on the coin, which he goes on to engage with, but he also asks whose inscription is on it. And the Bible doesn't tell us what was written on the coin, but we know because these coins exist to this day as artifacts, that they are in museums. We, knew, we know exactly what was written on a denarius from this time. Inscribed on this coin would have been the phrase, Tiberius Caesar, son of the god Augustus, Pontifex Maximus. The, the inscription was declaring that Caesar was king, son of God, and high priest. <laughs> Do you see the irony? Do you see the significance of this moment? This question was never really about taxes. It was about loyalty and devotion and allegiance and worship. Rome and the kingdoms of this world are never just after our taxes. They are after all of us. They want our hearts. They want our lives in full and and total loyalty. They want our allegiance and our support and our vote and our praise They want all of us. And here is Jesus, the true king. Not king over a measly earthly empire, but king over all of the cosmos. And and here is Jesus, the true son of God. Not the child of a mere man who claimed to be God, but son of the God, the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. And here is Jesus, our true high priest. Not a priest ministering over death and evil in the name of himself, but a priest who has passed into heaven on our behalf, who sympathizes with our weakness, who has been tempted in every way as we have, yet was without sin, who deals gently with the wayward and the ignorant, who allows us to draw near to the throne of grace in order to find mercy and grace to help us in our times of need who has become the source of eternal salvation for all who will obey Him. This encounter boils down to two men, both claiming to be a king, both claiming to be a divine son of God, both claiming to be a high priest. This entire encounter is all about devotion and allegiance. And Jesus rightly discerns that the real question behind the question is who should the people follow? Which king should the people follow? Which son of God should they worship? Which high priest should they trust? And what Jesus masterfully tells his followers in this tension is to refuse political simplicity, to refuse political complacency, and and most importantly, to refuse political primacy. we, We have to engage in the systems of this world, and it's okay to even when the system is evil, which is always the case in this world. 
And because of that, it's not going to be easy and simple and straightforward as to the best way to do so. But above all and through it all, we cannot let it have our devotion. Because there is another king who demands your allegiance. And there is a true son of God who has a claim over your life. And there is a real high priest who demands your heart. And you can't give it to anyone else. And at the end of this encounter, we're told that the Pharisees and the Herodians, whose sole intention was to trap Jesus and to end Jesus with this question, we're told that they marveled at him. Because in this answer, Jesus masterfully avoided their trap in both directions. For on the one hand, no one who heard Jesus' answer could claim that he told the people not to pay the tax, which would have meant revolt. But Rome couldn't come after him for that. But on the other hand, Jesus doesn't say just go along with the system and, and give them everything that they want. Give them your total allegiance, which would have meant giving up hope for the kingdom of God, losing his, losing his followers. He doesn't do that either. Instead, Jesus' point and Jesus' politic was this, that there is a revolution that is going to take place, but it's an entirely different kind of revolution than anyone ever expected. There is a kingdom that is coming, but it is an entirely different kind of kingdom than the kingdoms of this world. For Jesus' kingdom isn't built by a king who requires his subjects to pay a tax to belong to him. For in this kingdom, the king will pay the cost for you. He pays the price of your belonging on your behalf. Jesus' kingdom isn't built by a king who demands your allegiance through force. For in this kingdom, the king woos your allegiance through his own submission to death. Jesus' kingdom isn't built by the riches of this world. Jesus' kingdom is built by a king without a quarter to his name. He has to borrow a coin to make his point in this passage. He's given it all up so that you might be rich. Jesus' point is that a kingdom is coming, but it's a kingdom that is so different from, so contrary to, so much more significant than the kingdoms of this world that everything else pales in comparison. Jesus' view on the politics of this world is that he's honestly not that concerned about them. They're temporary, they're fleeting, their end is coming. And so we can subject ourselves to them, no problem. But we do so with our hearts and our passions and our allegiances and our loyalties and our devotion firmly anchored in the kingdom that is yet to come. So how does this play out in our lives? One simple and obvious and practical application for the week that's ahead. Many of you have probably already voted by now, but if you haven't, avoid political complacency. Participate in the system vote. You don't have to. It's not required. Caesar doesn't demand it, but it is an option and it is a freedom and it does make a difference in the world. Like we heard in our Old Testament reading from Isaiah, it's a way to seek the welfare of the place where we are living while we are here in exile. So avoid political complacency and participate in the system and vote. But as you do so, avoid political simplicity. By acknowledging and wrestling with the challenges of being a citizen of the kingdom of heaven while living as foreigners here in the kingdoms of men.
and deal with those challenges in the way that God's Spirit stirs your heart to. And through it all, avoid political primacy. Remember that your vote is not your allegiance. No one gets that but God. So seek the flourishing of the place where you live. But while never forgetting and never giving up your hope that the kingdom of God is coming, it is near. In Jesus, it is present. Church, if we'll engage in the kingdoms of this world with that perspective, it will be to the glory of God and to the good of his creation. May we do so.